Good evening. Before I started to study, I wanted to preach on the crucifixion. Now, I was studying the crucifixion. I realized there's so much more because I thought, you know, he died on the cross for our sin. What, you know, Thanksgiving, being thankful for his death on a cross and him as a propitiation for our sins. I'm like, what else? But there is a lot more. And the two verses, literally two verses that we're going to go through, show so much in the area of Christology, which is a study of the person and ministry of Jesus Christ, which that's pretty much what we went through in the summer. And it also shows an area of what's called soteriology, which is the study of salvation. So, if you have your Bibles, I hope you do, electronic or not, don't care, we're going to read these two verses in 1 John chapter 2, 1 to 2. My little children, these things I write to you, so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And he himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the whole world. Heavenly Father, as we come into your presence, Lord, and we read your word, I pray that you speak to our hearts and minds, that we may be better imitators of your Son, Lord, that we may look at this passage and give thanks that you didn't just die on the cross for our sins, but you are an advocate to the Father for us. We are saved through you and you alone, and we submit our hearts and our minds to you. In the precious name of Jesus, amen. All right, so first point we're going to go through is the address. Very simple. So typically when we do any kind of Bible study or inductive Bible study, we like to do observation, interpretation, and life application. So we're going to observe right off the bat. So as we observe, the first thing he says in chapter 2, my little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin, and if anyone sins, we have an advocate with our Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. So my little children, typically if you hear that, you might feel a little... Put off on that, or it might be a derogatory thing to certain people, but he is saying this in a very loving way, because in, in the first chapter of 1 John, he was focusing on false teachers and their lies. So now, John switches his focus to his readers, which are Greek-speaking Jews and Gentiles. See, the dress, my little children, is used as a warm, fatherly way. Now understand this. He wrote this book between 90 and 95 A.D. See, this is after the destruction of the, the temple in Jerusalem, which is around 70 A.D. And if Jesus died between 30 and 33 A.D., John was probably pretty old. It's likely he was a pretty old guy. So John is not talking down to them. He's showing them affection because he was their spiritual father. See, at the time of the writing, 
Once again, John was very old. He spent most of his life in ministry. So hypothetically speaking, say 30 AD, Jesus is crucified. Okay? Let's say John's 20 years old. And let's say this is 90 AD when he writes this, hypothetically speaking. That's 60 years. So he's likely 80 to 90 years old in reality. So imagine your entire life as an apostle, you're planting churches, you're ministering to people, miracles are being performed, and people are being saved. So he's seen all these people, and he's been spending his entire life ministering to these people, preaching to them, loving them. And it was definitely written before A.D. 100. Now, I know because a lot of people take a, a later date on this. Now, what's interesting is that they've seen a manuscript of this book that was found across the Mediterranean in a small town in Egypt, which was dated about A.D. 115 to 125. But there's no way that John would have still been alive because he was exiled to the Isle of Patmos at that time. Um, and he probably would have been dead at that point. But we have records that in AD 98, he was, died. He, he was dead because Irenaeus, the second century church father who defended against Gnosticism, he was an amazing apologist and amazing theologian, was showing that at this time, it was the time of the reign of Domitian, which was around AD 81 to 96. So I gave you a little bit of apologetics there because I know some people will say, hey, this was written so late in the game. No, this was written within the first hundred years, AD. Now, this epistle also, it's very important because it builds on the teachings of the gospel because John wrote the gospel of John, first, second, third, John, the epistles, and then what was the last book? Revelation, right? So he wrote all these books after the destruction of the temple. To my little children, he's writing to Greek-speaking Jews and Gentiles who are believers. Now, the purpose of this writing here is specifically mentioned in the next line, my little children, these things I write to you. Very simple. I write these things to you so that you may not sin. What is he talking about? Well, in the first chapter, they were talking about false teachers. What do false teachers tend to do? They lead people astray. You see that with various false teachers now. You know, guys like Kenneth Copeland and Todd White and Joseph Prince, Stephen Furtick. We can keep going. We can just do the whole night on false teachers if you want. No. No, we have to go back to, uh, so you do not sin, we have to go back to the first chapter of 1 John, uh, verses 5, 7, and 9 specifically. So if you look at verse 5, it says, This is the message which we have heard from him and declared to you that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. Now, if you go to verse 7 here, but if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sins. Now, in verse 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So we are to walk in the light because God is light, and we need to confess our sins. The point I'm going to focus on here is confessing our sins. Confess means to agree with another. To say the same thing about something. See, 
We think confessing is feeling guilty. That's not confession. Or feeling sorry for your sin. These are emotions that accompany confession. But they are not, they don't define confession. And they don't define the sin. See, as children of God, we are called to agree with God's viewpoints of sin, especially our sin. Because if we don't have objective truth, what do we have? Relativism. That means anything goes. Anything goes. There is no right and wrong. For us to understand what sin is, we have to have objective truth, and God is that objective truth. So we have to be in agreement with him, not us. So this means however big or small your sin may be, it is viewed as a horrible offense against the very character of God. But Chris, I just told a white lie. Well, guess what? It's a lie. You know what the interesting thing about white lies? Why would you tell them in the first place if they weren't so bad? Why don't you just tell someone the truth? Because if someone found out that you were lying to them because you were obviously trying to hide something, would they be upset with you? The answer is probably yes. So that person would be upset. So what do you think about God? Of course he would be upset. Adultery. Jesus says if a man looks at a woman with lust, he's already committed adultery. Where? In his heart. You look at the Ten Commandments, in reality... They all start with a mindset. The first commandment is, should I have any other gods before me? That's a mindset. That's a thought process. How about coveting? That's a thought process. Everything starts with a thought process. That's where sin starts, in the mind and in the heart. Now, as this, these horrible offenses are um, against the character of God, when we confess... It is a a present tense, is current. So suggesting that this agreement with God about sin is to be the believer's constant heart attitude toward it. Constant. See, in the first chapter, John emphasizes human sinfulness in order to make his readers despise their sin and try to stay free from it. Do we despise our sin? Often not. Why? Because sin feels good. Whatever that sin may be. As we move further, back to 1 John 2.1, so that you may not sin, and if anyone sins, if anyone sins here, means that you will try to stay free from sin by avoiding it, refusing it, but also confessing it when it does happen. Why do we want to hide anything from God? Don't we want to be better representatives of the kingdom of God? But hey, they don't know my sin. You know, sin's always done in the darkness, right? I can use the example of adultery. How many people are committing adultery in front of a bunch of people? Doesn't happen. When you rob a bank, people cover their faces. 
Most crime is done when at night or when no one's around. Just saying. See, Christians will sin because they have not received their glorified bodies that is free from their sin nature. So currently we have a sin nature. So John fully understood this. He did not want his readers to take the inevitable uh, inevitability of sinning as an excuse to sin. So typically what happens is, like, well, you know, I'm a sinner, so, you know, I'm just going to keep it going. Why not just let me sin? Well, hey, for all I've sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, right? God still forgives me. And then that leads into a really poor form of uh, theology, which is called free grace theology. The extreme form of free grace theology, there's no repentance required. And if you keep going with it, that if you just make a confession of your faith at one point in your life, then you're saved. There was no heart change or anything like that. Well, I have to disagree because it seems like every time I read the scriptures, obedience is the underlying theme throughout all 66 books of the Bible. Everyone was to obey, but we had a free will to obey. So with the free grace theology, unfortunately, it kind of gives people license to sin on the extreme version of it. So, now the tension between the two phrases here. So, the tension here is so that you will not sin, right? And if anyone sins, it forms this very healthy balance between the two, which is harsh and lenient view of sin. See, in certain denominations, if, let's say, you go dancing somewhere, you're under church discipline. And in other places, for example, the free grace, uh, hyper-free grace community, if you're just living in sin, it's like, hey, it's okay. And who are the people that we're most lenient with? Usually the people that are closest to us, right? Man, I got you. I'll take care of it. No one will know. Those are the people you need to be the most honest with. Because if you truly care about them, you would be honest with them. So we can't have a too lean view of sin or a harsh view of sin. Ultimately, believers have no business sinning however we do. But when they sin, God has provided a way from them to be cleansed. Now number three, the advocate. This first sub-point is Man's failure. Back to the, the term, anyone sins. And we mentioned it before, Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Everyone sins, right? Remember we talked about hiding from God and our sins? Well, here's what Hebrews chapter 4, 12 to 13 says. It says, for the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even the division of soul and spirit and joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. So this is talking about the word scripture. And now you see a transition here from the word of God to God himself. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open 
to the eyes of him to whom we must give what account? The word of God is discerner. What does discern mean? To recognize something. The word discerns us, and we give an account. So you actually have a choice whether to sin or not to sin, because if you're held accountable for your sin, that means you had a choice to sin. So if you have a choice to sin, that means you also have a choice not to sin. We are actually in control of our thoughts and our intents. We control those things. Yes, do we have a natural tendency to want to sin? Absolutely. But we don't have to. We can turn from our sins. That's the whole idea of repent, right? It's to change your mind. That's what the word means, to change your mind. You can change your mind whenever you want. Don't people do it all the time? Change your mind about what type of shirt you like or what kind of pants you like. Style changes all the time. But we have the option to change our mind towards Christ. Now we have another sub-point. It's the Father's provision. Sticking in verse 1. And if anyone says we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Now, in certain translations, you'll see Jesus Christ the righteous one. That's, you know, completing the concept. But we have an advocate, someone to defend us who speaks on our behalf. Just like if you were to commit a crime or be accused of a crime, you have lawyers, right? They act as your advocate. Now, the interesting thing is, this advocate knows you're guilty. He knows you're guilty. Let me ask you the question and answer it in your minds. Would you defend someone that's guilty? How about this? Would you defend someone with your life who is guilty? Would you take on their punishment and give your life? No. That's what's so special about this advocate. He gave his life for our sin, our mistakes, our mishaps, our imperfections. There is no advocate greater than this advocate. This advocate turned the world upside down and did something that no one else can do. And he is the only one that could be your advocate with the Father. No one can approach the Father. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me, him as the advocate. Once again, I told you, there's a lot of Christology here in these two verses. A lot of things about who Christ is. Now, Christ's competence See, one of the uniqueness of his relation to the deity, 
He is our advocate with the Father, right? Okay. See, the second factor is that Christ's fitness, his competence to be our advocate is his relation to us. He's human, isn't he? He's fully God and fully man. It's called the hypostatic union. See, the third factor is Christ's own personal sinlessness, which you see in Hebrews chapter 7, verse 26, which I'll read to you now. For such a high priest was fitting for us, who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and has become higher than the heavens. He is Jesus Christ, the righteous one. And finally here, Christ is uniquely suited to be our advocate because he is the propitiation for our sins, which we're going to see in the next verse. See, John, here, he declares Christ as the propitiation not only for our sins, but for the sins of the whole world. So, now, verse 2. And he himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the whole world. See, the Greek word here is helasmos. It can refer to remove or wipe away, but it also can refer to the death that the sinner who deserves wrath can escape now. See, just as people in the Old Testament could approach God when they, with a blood sacrifice of a, or a sin offering, and when that sin offering, the blood was sprinkled on the altar... So believers can fellowship with God because Christ sacrificed on the cross. Propitiation. Helasmos. This word is saying that someone else took on the penalty. Here's what 2 Corinthians 5.21 says. For he made him who knew no sin to be Sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. As a side note, I do want to point out there is a prominent preacher that thinks that became sin, that Jesus became gossip, a bestiality, really messed up stuff, and that's not what it means. That means he, this verse means that He took on our sin. That's what it means. He didn't become anything else. He took on our sins. I want to point that out because it's been flowing around for the last few months. <laughs> now, the Apostle Paul, when he wrote 2 Corinthians, when he said, he made him who knew no sin and became the righteousness of God in him, God presented him as a sacrifice of atonement. He is the atoning sacrifice in Romans uh, 3.25 says, Whom God set forth as a propitiation by his blood through faith to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance God had passed over the sins that were previously committed. As believers, our sins are wiped clean. They're blotted out. See, when Paul wrote this, John used the same notion in his epistles. 
In most world religions, people do things to make themselves acceptable to God. Here's the thing. There's nothing you can do to be acceptable to God outside of your faith. In Islam, it's following the five pillars. If you're Buddhist, you're eightfold path. And traditional Buddhism is atheistic at its core. If you're Hindu, you're in a pantheistic religion, which means that all is God, God is all. You're jumping through religious hoops, and you're trying to serve one of the 330 million gods. How do you please them? If you look at ancient Greek mythology, what were they doing? They were giving offerings to God. Even Molech in the Bible, as you see, they were sacrificing children to gain prosperity. See, when John explains it, the apostle, Jesus' death is the basis for forgiveness and salvation, not human merit. You are not good enough. But he makes us good enough. Number four. The whole world. Now, this is an interesting passage because there's a lot of controversy for, uh, between this passage, right? So, and he himself is a propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the whole world. So, there's an area of theology that points to this concept called limited atonement. Here's what it means. That God only died for the elect. Meaning the few who are believers, and that's all he died for. So, a person with limited atonement, they'll advocate for and argue that John is saying that Christ was the propitiation for us as a group of the elect. Now, the interesting thing is, the word for world is cosmos, where we get the word cosmos from. A lot of times in the Bible, when I see cosmos, it usually means the entire world. But I digress now. <laughs> So, black, but he is also the propitiation for the rest of the elect, the world, that's their perspective, who are scattered around the world, the globe, with the normal common sense approach method of observation. We're going to interpret this now. So that's one perspective from the limited atonement. The phrase, the whole world, is one in which naturally embraces all men. Like if the Apostle John meant that Christ died for all men. I don't know. When I read that, I just say, yep, he died for the whole world. <laughs> so the, the latter explanation is, uh, is the true explanation here. Uh, the clear, plain reading is good enough. It tells you he died for the sins of the world. And the reason why I'm explaining this to you, because there are brothers and, and sisters in the Lord that believe in that God only died for the elect. And I say, no, he died for the sins of the world. And this is where the whole concept of, remember, the doctrine of salvation, soteriology, is that, you know, the perspective I hold to is that he is the initiator of our salvation and we are the recipients of our faith. We are chosen but free. He foreknew, he predestined, he called, 
but there was a response to the call. If you look at the parable of the ten virgins, you have five foolish ones, five wise ones. They were all invited. They were all invited. Yet, five were foolish and didn't get the oil in their lamps. And then you had the five wise ones that had the oil in their lamps. Kind of seems like he literally died for the sins of the world. So, So, Christ's sacrifice is effective to those who are chosen. Absolutely. They're called. Yep. They're enlightened. Yep. And now believe. We choose to believe. But it's also sufficient to save the whole world. His blood is sufficient to save all the world. So as we go through a fairly short message today, we're going to go through our application See, our defense, John was completely aware that for the Christian who wants to make progress in their spiritual life, nothing is more demoralizing than sin itself. And you probably ask the question, why do I fall into that temptation again? You knew better. You ever get that, I know better? You ever say that to yourself, I know better? We all say, I know better. How could God give me this? And when I say, how could he give me this? I mean, the, your advocate. The righteous one, Jesus. Who appears before God as our representative. As you see in Hebrews 9.24. Christ is our defense. Having paid for all of our sins and purchased our complete forgiveness. Complete forgiveness. Which goes to show us when we forgive someone, we're supposed to forgive them what? Completely. Having paid for all of our sins and purchased our complete propitiation, Jesus Christ is able to represent us before a holy God. We don't have to fear eternal judgment because Christ died for our sins and we are not guilty. A seat in heaven shall one day be mine, but a chain in hell would have been mine if grace had not changed me, Charles Spurgeon. 